Hey, this is Larry Rollins, pastor of The Well Church, and thank you so much for listening to The Well Church's podcast. My hope is that this message aids you to be restored by the gospel. If you'd like to support the work that our church is doing, please visit our website, thewellmonroe.com, and click Give. Your gift, regardless of how large or small, helps us bring restoration by the gospel to broken people. So, enjoy this episode, and don't forget to subscribe. Man, I'm excited about this word this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And, um, and you should know, if you haven't been tracking with our series, that we are in a DNA series, and we are working through the DNA of the Well Church. And we are talking through uh, what it means to live in restoration. And so we believe our mission is to aid broken people in being holistically restored by the gospel. Restoration is defined as the recovery and pursuit of God's design for your life. And in that reality, in order for you to live in restoration, we believe that you need the three E's, which is to encounter Christ, exist in family, and engage the broken. If you're encountering Christ but not existing in family, then you are living out the entirety of your faith. If you're, encounter, if you're existing in family but not engaging the broken, you are living out the entirety of your faith. And so we want to empower you to live a restored life where you're growing in the gospel in the context of family while on mission. And so we're prayerful that our series uh, can help you with that. Uh, we're turning to Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 41. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible under your seat. And that page number is 595. Did I get it right? Okay, great, because y'all left me hanging a couple Sundays ago. I'm still a little salty about that. Just a little bit, though. So Acts chapter 2, verse 41 is where we're going to start. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 41, and it reads as so, so those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as in had need. Every day they devoted themselves to the meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. There's a young girl by the name of Millicent Gordon, uh, and in the 1960s, um, her mother was pregnant with her at the age of 16. It's not a story that many of us are unfamiliar with, that this teenage mom would give birth to this uh, young baby, and the father, before Millicent was ever born, had already left. And she grew up in an abusive home. Uh, her mom 
was abusive to her physically, verbally. And I can only speculate that that probably was a result of how her mom treated her. And so Millicent grows up in this uh, uh, abusive home until finally she runs into this family. And this family provides some type of aid in Millicent's life. Millicent, in her formative years, experienced a lot of trauma living with her mom and distant from her father. Many of you actually know Millicent. You really know her by the name of Penny from Good Times. Penny from Good Times. Uh, we know the story. We, we had the chance to watch the episodes and see how her story unfolds. That's what we're talking about today. But our, 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 uh, her lifestyle and, and what she experienced, uh, this dysfunction that she grew up in, is not familiar to many of us. It's not unfamiliar to many of us. Many of us can look into our family and identify some type of dysfunction. Some of you can relate to the reality that your father was never present in your life. Others, you, others, others can relate to the reality that, that your mom was, was abusive in some sense. Or you may have experienced some type of abuse growing up, whether it was physically or uh, emotionally or sexually. Uh, you might can identify with that reality of being abused. Maybe you're on the other end where... The dysfunction in your family may have not been to that extent, but you can still pinpoint some things that were abnormal at the end of the day. The fact of the matter is is that because of sin, our families are broken. Our parents are broken. Our siblings are broken. And the other relatives that we interact with are broken. They're broken spiritually. Emotionally, economically, socially, Carlos, the seas, all of those elements in their life are broken, but God gives us an answer to this brokenness. The answer to the brokenness that we see in our families is the gospel. And the gospel, again, is very much holistic. It is not just that uh, uh, it is that Jesus Christ uh, died on the cross for our sins, resurrected from the dead after being buried, and gives us a new life. That's very much the gospel. And that gospel has implications on every aspect of our lives. And so when Jesus lives this perfect life that we couldn't live, he dies this death that each of us are deserving to die because of our sin, and then he resurrects from the dead, uh, declaring that he is the Son of God, God himself, the, the Messiah, the Christ, the one that was expected to come, and he also gives us a new life. And in that new life, we could be restored. We can recover and pursue God's design for our family. The pastor's phone is still on. How about that? What you got to say, Carl? Okay, thank you. The gospel empowers us to live this new life. And here's the beautiful thing about the, the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus is that not only do we get to have a new life, we also get a new family. The Bible tells us that we are adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus did allows us to be brought into God's family. And here's the part that we can't miss. 
that a lot of times we like to overlook this reality is that our commitment to Jesus translates into a commitment to his family. And that's our bottom line today. That our commitment to Jesus translates into a commitment to his family. That we cannot possibly be committed to Jesus without also being committed to his family. There's nowhere in the Bible that you will find that someone has given their life to Jesus and not find it necessary to also be committed to his family. And this is uh, what we see in our text, if we're understanding collect, uh, uh, contextually, uh, the, the, uh, the Jesus has resurrected from the dead, he's met with his disciples, he's encouraged them, and he's given them parting, parting instructions. And he says that you are to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you always, even unto the end. And then he tells them that before you do that, I want you to go and I want you to wait because I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send you a comforter, a friend, a companion, my Holy Spirit, and he's going to be with you. And so the disciples uh, and some others, they, they waited for the Spirit of God and, 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 and the Holy Spirit came upon them on Pentecost uh, like a mighty rushing wind and they began to speak uh, in other tongues, as the Bible would describe it, that people who were listening began to hear their own native languages from these unlearned Galilean individuals on that day. And they're confused. How is it that I'm hearing my own language from them when they can't speak my language? And so they, they conclude that they have to be drunk. Even though it's 9 in the morning, Peter and Nim are getting toasted. But Peter steps out and he uh, explains to them that it's not drunkenness that they're witnessing. What they're witnessing is the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter begins to lay out a systematic gospel explanation to people who are, 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 are uh, uh, subscribed to the Jewish religion, Judaism. And he begins to explain to them that Jesus Christ, that the one, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is the Messiah that the Old Testament prophesied about. That Jesus is the one you crucified. And after they hear the gospel presentation, they're, they're enamored, they're, they're inspired, and they want to know, what do I have to do? Peter tells them to repent, turn from your sin, and be baptized. And on that day, as verse 41 tells us, 3,000 people become a part of the church. 3,000. The first church that ever existed was a mega church. The first church that ever existed took in 3,000 people on its first day. And what we'll continue to see in this passage is, is that following their commitment to Jesus, they committed to his family. Here's the first thing that we see in the text. Verse 42 says, what, did, uh, uh, what does it look like to be committed to his family? That's what we need to know. Here's what verse 42 through 43 says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Here's the first thing they did. They devoted 
themselves. We need to deal with that word devoted. Uh, devoted here, uh, uh, it, it means to be completely committed to something. And so this, this new church was completely committed to what? The apostles' teaching. Now, we also need to talk about um, what, what is this teaching that they were doing? Again, devoted is, is to be continually, as the Greek word would show us, to be continually engaged in something, to be continually committed. And so they are continually committed to what the apostles teaching. And what was the apostles teaching? Y'all give me a moment because I just every once in a while I like to have a geek out moment. All right. Spend all this time in seminary. I want to use it. <laughs> okay. Graduation is May 16th. I wouldn't, you know, somebody didn't pay thousands of dollars for me to not be smart. So what the apostles teaching is what theologians would call uh, a messianic Christology. Okay. Messianic Christology. Let's break these two words down. Messianic comes from the Greek word Mashiach, which means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Okay. And so uh, the, the anointed one is the one that the nation of Israel was expecting to come and to deliver them uh, out of the oppression that they were facing. So God's promise, promised one was the Messiah. So messianic, from the Hebrew word, we transliterate Messiah, right? And then Christology comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. It is the a word that they would use to explain Messiah in Greek. And so ology, we know, is the study of, which comes from the Greek word logos, which is the word. And so here we are. What their, study, what their teaching is, Messianic Christology, it is how Jesus Christ, the one who they saw, is talked about in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophecies, which there are many of them, talk about who the Messiah is, what is he like, what is he about, and the, the apostles would take these Old Testament passages and would point them to show how Jesus fulfills those passages. Ultimately, what they were teaching was about Jesus, about his life, about his works, about who he is and what he came to do. If I was to contextualize this for us and build this uh, uh, principal bridge, I would say that they were committed to gospel-centered teaching. And that's what we should be committed to. We should be centered, uh, uh, committed to gospel-centered teaching where what we are focused on is Jesus. There are some people, some believers, who feel like, man, are we going to ever talk about anything other than the gospel? And I would like to definitively say at the Well Church, no. There is nothing else for us to talk about other than the gospel. Because if you are a Christian and you are tired of the gospel, I would argue that you don't really understand the gospel. That the gospel is the center of who we are. The gospel influences how we think about life. The gospel shapes how we live. It changes our world's view. And everything that we do and everything that we think should be filtered through the gospel. And so we have to be committed to teachings that is centered around the gospel, that the gospel has to be the focus. And so we will listen to teaching 
Ye, uh, 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 Jesus has to be center of that teaching. Which means also that we have to be careful of false gospels. And that those false gospels are not the center of what we're listening to. And the center of what we're hearing. And one of those false gospels is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is this idea uh, uh, that whatever you speak comes into existence. It is this idea that, that the seeds that you sow, if you sow a seed, that God is bound to give you a harvest. And in most cases, that's a monetary seed. And we've seen them on our TVs. We've seen them on YouTube. Uh, uh, this, this idea, where, and even one of the passages that they use, and we hear this, and I didn't even realize how, how, how much the, the prosperity gospel had in, infiltrated my own theology. That this idea that, that we can command uh, 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 material things into the world simply by the words that come out of our mouth. And we've heard this thing. We've heard the saying, right? Speak those things that are not as though they are. And we believe that that's scripture. But if we really look at that verse, that's not what it's saying at all. It's really talking about Abraham and what God is doing in the life of Abraham. And so that verse has been manipulated and twisted to say what individuals have wanted it to say. That we've been coerced to believe that when we pray, we can say, I declare and decree right now that X, Y, and Z will happen. And when did you ever start talking to a king like that? If God is the Lord of the universe and he is in control, I don't come to God demanding and telling him what he's going to do. I don't have that kind of authority. And we've been shaped by this gospel that, that, that makes us believe that we are never supposed to be sick, that we are never supposed to experience hardship, that we are never supposed to uh, be lacking financially, and that if you have a lack in your life and you have a, a, a sickness in your life, it is because you don't have enough faith. That's a false gospel. Because the gospel, Jesus even said, foxes have uh, holes and dens and birds have nests in the air, but the Son of Man has no where to lay his head. Jesus said, in this life, it is full of trouble. My God, I'm preaching this morning. In this life, it is full of trouble. But take heart, you will overcome the world. Why? Not because you can speak it into existence. Not because you are God with a little G. You can overcome because I have overcome. And so we got to be careful of the stuff that we are listening to. Because when we listen to a sermon, because I know you got your favorite YouTube preachers and your favorite Apple Podcast preachers and your favorite Spotify preachers, you have to make sure that those teachings are gospel-centered, where you are not the hero in the sermons. And we like that. that. That makes us feel good when we're David in the David and Goliath situation, right? It makes us feel good when we're the one with the five smooth stones and when our giant at work comes up to us, by God's power, we can slay our giants. Can I tell you that if it's a gospel-centered message, you are not David? That Jesus is David? Jesus is the greater David who slays the Goliath in our life, which is sin. And so who's left for us to be in the equation? The scared Israelites. And that's the reality. We can't conquer sin. We need someone greater than ourselves to be our champion to slay sin. And Jesus does that, not you. 
For we have to beware of man-centered teaching and be consistent and committed to gospel-centered teaching. And that takes training, okay? That takes unlearning some bad habits. It, it, is, it is like, uh, 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 you know, I'm not a huge wine drinker because I like Kool-Aid too much and none of it's ever sweet enough. But, you know, like wine tasters would say, there's an acquired taste you have to develop, right? And so with gospel-centered teaching, sometimes it might not be what you've heard all of your life, and you have to develop an appetite for it. But when you do, it'd be better for your growth. I've spent way too much time there, but I think that's important. They were devoted to gospel-centered teaching, the teaching of the apostles. Furthermore, a person committed to Jesus' family is also committed to regular fellowship. Look at the verse. It says, verse 42, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Verse 46 and 47 says, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The scripture says that they were devoted to the fellowship of one another. They were devoted to fellowship. That Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, and it is used 19 times in the New Testament. It is a word Paul commonly uses to describe the unity and bond that we have between one another as brothers and sisters in Christ as Christians, and also our relationship with God. Fellowships describes, again, the unity and bond between Christians and their relationship to God. However, when Luke uses this word grammatically, because Luke is the author of Acts, the grammatical structure shows how he is using fellowship. The, the word that he, he, he's using, I mean, the, the structure that he's using grammatically is what we would call oppositional. Oppositional is not O-P-P-O, it is A-P-P-O, oppositional, and it's saying that the, the first word is defined by the second word preceding it. So here's an example on the screen that if you look in the scriptures, fellowship is being defined by the breaking of bread and prayer. And so what Luke is saying is, is that their fellowship with one another consisted of sharing meals together. Their fellowship with one another consisted of them sitting down at each other's table and sharing a meal together. And they were also committed to praying with one another. They sat down, as the scripture said, they would share meals, and they would also pray. Here, here's what I want to know. How often did they do this? Every day. Now, but before I, I, I don't want you to explain that away, okay? I want us to, to take a break and realize that they're doing two things every day. They are gathering with one another. Enjoying each other's company, 
sharing a meal together, as the scripture says, with joyful and sincere heart. And so gathering with other believers was not a burden to them, was not something that they looked and said, oh, it's about 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock or, or 9.30 in the morning, I got to get to church. It wasn't that. They enjoyed being with each other. They did it with sincere and glad hearts. And they did it how often? Every day. Some of y'all don't like that reality. You're afraid to say every day. You're like, man, Larry's. the fact that I see some of y'all twice a week is a bit much for me. Every day? Really? Every day. They met together with one another. They were committed to fellowship so much so that they met every day. I feel like Allen Iverson, right? You talking about practice? Not the game. Practice? Yes, every day. None of the non-athletic people got that reference at all. It's okay. Every day they met together to share a meal, to commune with each other, and to pray. Prayer is that important. That they did it daily with one another. They did it every day. Here's the thing. Here's what the church gurus say. The church gurus say that that most people are willing on average to give you two days of their week. Only high caliber leaders are willing to give you three. But the early church met seven days a week. Now, I want to personally take a moment and celebrate our praise team. Because in most cases, they're giving four days a week. They do. Tuesday night mission of family. Thursday night praise team practice. Saturday night set up and tear down. Sunday morning. They're here at 8. I was going to say 15, but they don't give you that. 8.30. It's, I don't either, so. But they're here, committed to regularly engaging with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, let me say this. As you're dealing with the weight of that, uh, I want to teach you how to read the Bible, too. There are certain things, especially in narrative passages, that are uh, you need to discern whether they're descriptive or prescriptive. Descriptive means that it is telling me what is happening, and when it is descriptive, I need to find a universal principle that will apply to them and to us without having to change anything. Does it make sense? If it's prescriptive, that means that I need to be doing it. This is it, The scripture is telling me what needs to be happening in my life. This passage is very much descriptive, and so our job here. It's not that we have to meet every day, but we want to take the principle that is present in the passive passage and we want to apply that principle to our life. And what is that principle? That they were committed to meeting regularly with one another. And that fits into their uh, historical context and that also fits into our modern context that we need to be committed to regularly engaging with one another. We need to exist in family. We need to do that regularly. The Bible tells us that the word one another is used, the Greek word for it is used over a hundred times. 
And there are 59 occurrences where it is used as an imperative. Here's an image of that, if you can show it at the time, and there's some on the back of your uh, sermon handout. It uses these words of one another, and it tells us that we should love one another. It uses that 16 times in the scriptures. It tells us that we should honor one another, that we should be devoted to one another, that we should uh, admonish one another. And so here it is, all of these one another passages. The reality is, is that you can't live out these one another passages on your own. By yourself. If you think that you can be a Christian and not be committed to a family, particularly God's family, you're mistaken. Now, I, I don't hear me be ungracious to the reality that you may have experienced some hurt in your life regarding churches. And I want to be sympathetic. Uh, sympathetic to that reality because even myself, really empathetic, I've gone through some church hurt myself that I'm still working through. I think I shared it in our mission of family that I had to get a, a gentle light rebuke from a mentor a few weeks ago because of the church hurt that I, I'm wrestling with and it's manifesting in other areas of my life. But I don't want you to use that as an excuse to be disobedient to the Lord. That God is more than capable of healing those deep-seated wounds that you have about church. He's able to. Also, you may be a person who's saying that, man, look, I, uh, you might not see the value in it. Or you might just feel like you need to gather on occasion. And it's really hard to be Obedient to scripture if you have that mentality. How is it that you can be obedient to Hebrews when it says, don't forsake gathering with one another so that you can stir each other on to provoke uh, love and good works? If you don't meet with other believers, you can't do that. And here's the thing we need to understand about the text. Contextually, this gathering every day, this gathering regularly does not happen with occasional friends here and there. It happens within the context of a local church. When Paul writes his letters, it, those letters are written to local body of believers, which teaches us that you have to be committed to a local body of believers. And, and to be committed is not just showing up on Sundays. That's not commitment to, to the family. To be committed to show up occasionally, you need to have the people that you are in community with, that you're doing family with, they need to be in the rhythms of your life. That's why, Daniel, I call him so much. Because we're family. That's why I talk to Carl so regularly, because we're family. These people are, are in the regular rhythms of my life. Why? Because they're family. I'm always connected to our church because I'm always connected to people in our church and their family. That we share meals together. Not just Carl, but most of our church. We share meals together regularly. I've been in their homes. I show up unannounced sometimes. Why? Because we're family. 
I call during work. I don't wait till you get off. Because we're family, right? Family gets to walk in your house, kick off their shoes, go in your refrigerator, and never ask your permission. That's family. When I go to the Austin's house, I don't knock. I'm family. When they tell me what door to come in through, I go through the door I want to go through. Because I'm family. We need to live in that reality with one another. It's not about how often you show up to events. It's about how we engage in the rhythms of each other's lives. Because we're family. And so if you want to be obedient to the scriptures, you can connect with your family. And they pray with their family regularly. And this prayer is so important that, that Paul says uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, through 18, I know I'm giving you a hard time with that. It says, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you've been confused about what is God's will for your life, your, God's will is for you to pray. <laughs> God's will for your life is for you to pray all the time. Here's what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said about prayer. He said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And so we're, to pray constantly is to pray like we take breaths. Constantly. Just as I breathe, I pray. And that's what the family did. And again, when did they pray? In what context did they pray? They did it with the family. When was the last time you called a brother in the faith, particularly connected to your local family, to pray with him? In fact, I, I just want to offer some, some, some challenge to our family is that I, I really would love to see us praying with one another at least once a day. To take 10 minutes on your ride home from work to call a brother or sister and say, hey, how can I pray for you today? And pray with them on the phone. Is that, is that too difficult to do? 15 minutes out of the hundreds of minutes you have in a day? We should be in fellowship with each other regularly. If you've not had a brother in the faith or a sister in the faith at your dinner table, you need to fix that ASAP. If you've not had a brother in the faith across the ethnic spectrum at your table or sister, you need to fix that ASAP. Because one, at the well church, we're going to live in community with one another, and we're not going to live segregated from one another. I don't care what side of the river you live on. If you've not had someone across the river at your dinner table, fix it ASAP. Because we need to be committed to fellowshipping with our family. Amen. And you should do this with an attitude of thanksgiving. Not like it's a burden. And if you find it a burden, you need to go back to your prayer closet. We need to deal with some stuff between you and God. God exposed the sin in my life that I don't find joy with my family, that I don't find joy with your family. God, that I don't find joy with your bride. Fix my attitude. Is that prayer? 
my grandmother passed away, uh, she, uh, my, all of my dad's siblings, and I, I'm not sure if this was her dying request or not, but all of my dad's siblings decided that every Thanksgiving, regardless of where they lived there, they were going to meet once a year for Thanksgiving, which obviously they're going to meet once a year. But they were going to meet for Thanksgiving. And so every year, my family from Missouri, from Texas, from uh, California, and other places all meet and they rotate between their siblings' homes. So a couple times we'll have it in Monroe, then we'll have it in Houston, uh, and so on and so forth. One year I remember that uh, I, was, I was probably, I don't know, 10 or something like that, and the uh, car broke down and we couldn't go. And I cried. And my parents made some phone calls, worked some stuff out, and we got into some old hoopty, and we drove all the way to Houston, Texas for Thanksgiving that year. Why? Because they were committed to fellowshipping with each other. And we need to have that same level of commitment to one another. Here's our last point. We need to commit to sacrificial generosity. Take a look at verse 44. It says, now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property, distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. The first church lived in unity with one another, so much so that they did not hold their belongings as mine all mine. That they lived in such a way that those things were considered common to them. That, you know, it's just like gum, right? You know how we willingly share a pack of gum? Right? They held all of their possessions as common. It was not an issue to share those things. So much so that they, they would steward their treasures, their possessions in such a way that they would sell their property to meet the needs of others. We see an example of this in Acts, uh, chapter, 40, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. It's on the screen. You don't have to look for it. It says, for there was not a needed person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them and they brought the proceeds of what they sold and laid them at the feet of the apostles. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. So they cultivated their relationship with, with their family and with God by stewarding their treasures in such a way that if there were people in their family that had a need, they sold their stuff. They didn't sell it just because they didn't sell it because they were forced to. They did this voluntarily because they cared about other family members, other siblings in the faith, so much so that those things were not more valuable than their daily bread being there. They didn't hold a thing in common. And here's the, the process in which they did it. They sold the possessions and they laid it at the apostles' feet so that they could distribute it appropriately. Now, for some of us who may have some bad experiences with churches and money, that might make you a little uncomfortable. But the reality is that that's what they did in the scripture. And we have to be mindful and careful not to allow individuals who have abused the Bible and have abused uh, a faithful giving and proper giving to the church and allow that to be an excuse for us to not give. The context of giving in this passage sacrificially and generously, is in the local church. So what does that mean? That means, A, you need to give to the local church, and B, you need to do that generously and sacrificially. 
as I like to tell my, our family, when you give, there should be a godly ouch when you give. There should be like, oh, Lord, that's a, that's, a, that's a good bit of money right there, sin. Right? That's sacrificial. And it should be generous. We have an example of that in the scriptures. This woman, I won't read the passage, who uh, uh, is offering time at the temple and all these people, uh, contextually what they'll do, they'll bring large bags of coins and they'll drop it in the, in the offering plate, if you will, and it'll clang and it'll let everybody know that like, I gave a lot of money, right? But this one lady comes and I'm just in my Christian imagination, I, I can just see that this is an old woman that's been faithful to the Lord a long time and she got a little bend in her back and she's slowly walking up to the plate and she gives two mites. Two. There's no claim when she drops it in. And here's what Jesus says to his disciples when he sees her giving. They've given out of their abundance, but she's given out of her poverty. And, and what she gave was worth more than what they gave. Because she gave sacrificially. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we give, it needs to be sacrificially generous. As I've been having conversations about giving one-on-one with, with a lot of our family, uh, I've been hearing, like, how should I give? What should I give? I've heard this question uh, uh, several times. And what I've been sharing is, is that, look, when you give generously, what you're saying, there's some, some spiritual principles that you need to consider. One is that you are trusting God with your income. And so you need to, to look at your income and say, this is what I can give to be generous and also be sacrificial that doesn't put my household where we can't provide for ourselves. Right? So I'm not saying that you sow a seed by faith and if you give, God will give back to you tenfold. I'm not saying that because that's not the purpose for us giving. When we give, we give not out of an expectation to get something back from God. We give because we are grateful that the 100% of our income belongs to him and he is the reason we have it. And so we give a portion of that back out of gratitude. So some of asked, should I get 10? Should I give... 15, should I give 20, should I give 75? Yes, I'm kidding. Nobody asks about 75. I, I, I am less concerned about what percent you give of your income. I am. I'm not concerned about what percent. I'm concerned that you live out the spiritual principles that you've given generously and sacrificially. Some of you may have trouble doing that. And the reason why is because you don't budget. And you need the budget. You need to look at what you typically bring into the household, compare that to your expenses, and you need to know what that looks like going in and what going out. I don't have the margin in this sermon to talk about that, so if you want to learn how to budget, shoot me a text, and I'll get you connected with the right person, and we can do that. And this is important. Why is budgeting important? Why is this a spiritual matter? Because if you budget properly, then you can give faithfully to God, and you can be obedient to the Scriptures. And you can give God your best. Not just give to the church, 
Not just give to, to make the things happen, but give because you love God. You're grat- grateful to what God has done in your life, and you want to give him your best, and you want to exist in family so much so that you can help provide the needs for others. And if you don't budget, if you don't properly manage and steward your income, then you can't give your best to God. So that's important. Again, this happens in the context of the local church. And what we see in the scriptures is a beautiful example of what a family looks like when it is founded on Jesus as the foundation and not living in dysfunction. That is not founded on dysfunction, but it is founded on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of their family, and because of that, they are able to love one another, to hang out with one another with joy, to give generously and sacrificially to take care of one another. They're able to do this. They're able to do this because of Jesus Christ. And regardless of what family background you may have, God wants to bring you into a new family. He wants to love you. He wants to encourage you. He wants you to truly live out your faith in this new family. So if you recall, Penny was rescued from her abusive situation, right? She was rescued because Wilona, the the friendly neighbor, came and adopted her and removed her from that abusive situation. And God wants to do the same thing in your life. In fact, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, the scripture says that we were adopted into a new family. That you're no longer an orphan. You no longer have to be in an abusive relationship with sin, but Jesus has rescued you, and your response to that is to repent, is to turn away from your sin and believe in the good news. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, willingly gave his life for you. Place your trust in Jesus. Place your confidence in him. If you want to do that, Come have a conversation with my sister Erin at the connect table. She'll be over there. And also, if, you're, if you realize that through this time, you need to be obedient to the scriptures because you're not connected with a family, you can take that connect card, check how can I be a member. And even if you just want information, check that connect card and we'll get you that information. So don't live in disobedience. Amen.